Two weeks ago, I had the opportunity to speak on hope. As we're walking through Advent, we've been walking through these topics in relation to the coming of Christ, hope, peace, and now we're in joy. And if you remember some of the context that I shared, as we shared the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth and how they were in this moment after 400 years of silence where the Lord had not spoken to the people of Israel, this 400 years of silence, the intertestamental period, and the Lord broke the silence through his messenger, the angel Gabriel, to Zechariah, performing his duties in the temple, announcing to him this incredible revelation of what was to come. And in the context of that, we know that like, it, it, it sometimes... When we read as, as, you know, modern readers, we read the scriptures and we see the story just goes right next to each other. And it, it's, it's sometimes hard for us to remember the human context or even the, the reality of the day. And so as we walk in and continue where we left off in the story in Luke chapter 1, we're starting at, at Luke chapter 1, um, verse 26. And we know that the angel proclaimed to Zechariah that, that his wife, who is old and barren, was pregnant with the son that would become John the Baptist, who would prepare the way for the Son of God to come. After 400 years of silence, the silence was broken with the word of the Lord to what he was about to do. And so in the story, we know that this has just happened. And, you know, as Gabriel has his assignment, he moves from there and he encounters Mary. Verse 26, it says this, In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel went to her and said, Greetings, for you are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Now please remember, although Zechariah knows that the 400 years of silence has been broken. Mary does not. There was no email. There was no phone calls. There was no, there was no real, and since Zechariah himself had been muted by the angel, he wasn't telling the story. Elizabeth may have been processing what happened, you know, because uh, he couldn't tell her. There's a very good chance Mary had no idea that the 400 years of silence had been broken. And can you imagine for just a moment, you are a 14-year-old girl in one of the least revered or esteemed towns in Israel, Nazareth. You are pledged to be married. You are faithful, but you also are living in this reality that they all had been living in of this quiet, resigned despair of this hopeful morning and longing for God to show up and to break in. And here you are, the most unlikely of people and the most unlikely of places. And the angel Gabriel appears to you. And from your perception, there has been no silence broken yet. And God shows you. It makes sense. And at verse 29, it says, Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. 
You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she, who is said to be unable to conceive, is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. Now just, we're going to pause there for a minute and let's just acknowledge the bravery and the courage of her response to that moment. If we can put it in context, she is a virgin, she's pledged to be married, and now she finds out she's pregnant from God. Now, can you, can you imagine... The Lord has been silent for 400 years. How believable is this 14-year-old in the most ignoble of all towns in Israel going to be when she says to her betrothed or to her family or to her community, yet God got me pregnant. I swear an angel told me. God has not spoken to Israel for 400 years. How courageous of Mary to accept this from the Lord and say, let it be into me. Let your word be fulfilled. But we do see some, a little clue of what emotionally and might be have gone through Mary's mind in the next sentence. In those days, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country called Judah, of Judah, where she entered the home of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. Now, can you imagine why she might have been real quick to hurry to go see Elizabeth? If you have lived in a culture where God has not spoken for 400 years and God has now told you a virgin, you're pregnant, but also told you your cousin who is very old and unable to conceive is pregnant and in their sixth month of pregnancy. I imagine Mary is contending with this reality of like, can I believe what I've just been told? I better skedaddle on over to Elizabeth to see if this is true. Imagine the joy mixed with the weight, the weight of responsibility, the weight of the glory of this, the, 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 the everything of it all, the consequences of what she sees when she sees Elizabeth, who is barren, six months pregnant, and the revelation that this is true. God chose me. God spoke to me and is doing this through me after 400 years of, of seeming absence. And it makes sense, the responses and the confirmation, the grace of God to confirm to both of them what's going on here. And we see in the story, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why am I so honored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For as soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. 
Blessed is he. Blessed is she who has believed what the Lord's the word the Lord's word to her, that the Lord's word to her will be fulfilled. Now I want to say something here. You know, Mary responds, and just so you know, in the scriptures when you're reading, and it looks like a normal text, but then it breaks out into what looks like poetry. You know, it, it's it's an interesting thing because essentially Mary is breaking out in song and worship. And honestly, there is no other real response that our heart can have when God is revealing something so powerful, when the, the, the magnitude and the glory of God is truly known to us. The most natural response is worship. And this is what Mary does. She breaks out into worship and she sings, not says, basically sings, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked with favor on the humble state of his servant. From now on all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him. From generation to generation, he has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has exalted the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful as he promised to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. There's there's so many things, so little time. I want us to come back because this theme of this week of joy is so important and I want to look at a couple words that, that just really are, are profound as we study the word here. When Elizabeth speaks that the, the child in her womb leapt, that it leapt with joy. That word in the Greek, agaleseis, it only occurs three times in the Greek in the New Testament. So it's a rare word to be used in the Bible, and it means exceeding joy. You know, I tried to pronounce it well. I even Googled it to try to pronounce it well. I hope you appreciate my efforts. I am not a Greek scholar. But there's another word when Mary says, my spirit rejoices in God our Savior. That word rejoices, that has the same root word as the word that Elizabeth said, but it's, it's different. And it only occurs one time in the New Testament. It's such a rare expression of joyful, exuberant response that only finding its place once in the New Testament. And honestly, I could not in all the searching find anyone who knew how to pronounce it. Which speaks to the profound joy that Mary is experiencing in knowing and believing that what God has said to her is true. And we miss it sometimes just because, you know, English doesn't have quite the same potency in its language and its descriptions that that Greek sometimes does. And we do miss it, but the power there is so exceedingly rich of the expression of worship and joy that Mary is exclaiming. And what I think makes this so incredibly profound is the cultural context now, I'm sure if you've been in church for any number of time, any length of time, we've all heard Christmas story messages. 
And often I think if they focus on the circumstance that Mary is finding herself in, we recognize this is, this is a difficult circumstance. Mary's got some splaining to do to Joseph because she is pregnant. She's gone to be with her cousin Elizabeth. By the time she comes back to her town, it's going to be very obvious that she's pregnant. And something we have to understand a little bit about the Middle Eastern culture that still exists in some places today and was especially true back then. And this is a whole other message for a whole other time to unpack all of it, but just for the sake of context and understanding, we can understand that there are aspects of this culture that, that people describe as a honor and shame culture. And so sometimes we think of things just in really black and white terms, but honor and shame carry with it kind of a, a, a continuum, a spectrum of what's honorable and what's shameful. And there's different degrees of honorable and shameful. So, you know, we, we don't often put this in the context of the story, but in the context of that culture, especially in this circumstance of a young, engaged, basically girl to a, a man, they have not had their wedding ceremony. They've not consummated their marriage, but she is found to be pregnant. You know, it wouldn't be the first time in human history an engaged couple cross some boundaries, Right. Oh, really? You're going to do that to me this morning? Let's try that again. Would not be the first time in human history that an engaged couple crossed some boundaries and maybe got pregnant before they got married, right? First century, still human is human. People is people. And sometimes it happened. And on the spectrum of shame and honor, it wasn't so shameful as to get the consequences that would have been true if a woman was caught as an adulteress. And we know from just the example in the Gospels where Jesus rescued the woman from being stoned to death for her adultery, that would be on the extreme shame continuum that if Mary had committed adultery, she would have been vulnerable to, and, and sadly, what can often still happen in our day and age now in some Middle Eastern cultures, an honor killing She's dishonored her family, and the consequence is death. But even back then in this time, it wasn't completely rare to have people that just, you know, they, they didn't maintain their purity or self-control. They got pregnant before the wedding. And they would call this when it was known and accepted that the, the bridegroom and the bride did this. They call it... Uh, interesting word, inchoate wedding or an inchoate marriage. And inchoate just means only partly in existence, not perfectly formed, imperfect, immature. It has this context of like, well, it's not so bad, but it's not what was intended. And we kind of get this culturally today. If we, you know, we know that there, sometimes this happens and, and you see like an engaged couple where they, they make a mistake, they lack self-control. They get pregnant before their wedding and we're like, well, that's not great, but uh, let's get you to the wedding. You know, it's like shotgun wedding. There's a, there's a name for that sometimes. And, and the reality in this is that in this culture, you know what? It depended on one thing, the testimony of the groom. Mary has found herself pregnant by means of the Holy Spirit, carrying the Son of God after 400 years of silence where God is not speaking. And now she is a 14-year-old girl in the most non-honorable town in all of Israel, has to convince 
her fiance or hope that he will believe that the God of the universe who hasn't spoken to the priests, the high priests, the religious people has done this for a 14-year-old girl. And her response in this, not knowing his response, is worship to God. Could we all be a little bit more like Mary? But this does rely on the decision that Joseph is going to make in response. Now we have to, again, hold this in the tension of a honor and shame culture. Because Joseph has a decision to make that if, if he were to say, yeah, not an adulteress, that means that he is surrendering some of his honor. He is taking on dishonor to cover her. And in a culture that valued honor so highly, that was a big ask. And especially big that she is saying what we've already established, God spoke to her. How do, you, how do you bring that in? How do you receive that? He would have been logically justified to say, this is not my child and let Mary suffer the consequences. But we pick up the story of Joseph in Matthew 1, verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to a man, Joseph, but before they came together... She was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit because Joseph, her husband... Now, Matthew's saying this because he knows it was the Holy Spirit. We know the story. Joseph did not know. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly, meaning he would take the dishonor. He would take the shame that people would perceive he and her had done this, he would take that on surrendering the respect, the dignity that would have come with being able to say, I did not do this. He covered her. Think about that for just a minute. He made the decision to cover her, to not shame her, and made the plan, knowing he did not get her pregnant, I will cover her shame, protect her from the consequences, and then quietly divorce her later. That's pretty darn noble. In this culture, it's pretty darn noble. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife, but he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son and he gave him the name Jesus. Now, verse 25 is interesting because we often skip over the little uncomfortable detail about their personal lives. Basically, he did not have sex with his wife until Jesus was born. And honestly, because he knew the prophecies, he knew what the Lord was saying. He was surrendering his own right. He was demonstrating self-control because it's the virgin that gives birth. Not just the virgin that conceives, but the virgin that gives birth. He submitted his life and the plan that God had completely 
to the will of God to fulfill what God had spoken. This is a good man. I can begin to understand with all that context in mind why God chose Mary and Joseph, two of the bravest, most honorable people from the most non-honorable town to be the ones to raise the son of God as their own. It's a profound story. But in the midst of it, let's not miss that it is a profound story of joy. You know, joy, since it's our topic today, let's do a little word research. Joy appears over a hundred times, the word joy over a hundred times in the Old Testament with 15 different Hebrew words to describe it. For example, simcha, which means joy, gladness, or mirth. There's that one, but that's derived from samach, which means to rejoice, meaning joy, happiness, mirth is tied and rooted in rejoicing, which is worship. Let's not miss that. That particular version of it, the rejoice one, appears 93 times in the Old Testament. If we go then, we all, there's also another derivative word called sasan, which means exultation or rejoicing. Again, worship. It's derived from the root word sus, which has a meaning to exult or rejoice. Again, we see the joy in the Hebrew is tied irremovably from this concept of our soul rejoicing and worshiping. In the Greek, there are eight Greek words for the word joy, but the most prevalent one is kara, which appears about 60 times in the New Testament. And its first occurrence is about the nativity of Jesus. According to um, Strong's Concordance, a wonderful resource, kara means joy, calm, delight, or inner gladness. It is also related to the word Cairo, which means rejoice, and the word charis, which means grace. Joy, worship, grace are all tied together in the roots of understanding of this language. They are intermingled. In fact, if you go even further, the word gratitude, it has its root in the, in the same word the same meaning, the same word kara, but it is a variation called karati, which is where we get charity. That word shows up 150 times, 157 times, which means that grace and worship and joy, charity has its root in joy and grace and worship because, of course, when we know and receive the grace, the favor, the love of God. When we respond in worship, a natural response to what God has done is to pour out to others what he has poured into us. So I, I want us to keep this in mind because there's some really amazing thing about this, that these concepts that are so pivotal in Christianity, in our, in our practice of our faith, come back to joy over and over again. And there's a beautiful thing about joy. My arms are annoying me today. <clears throat> okay. Joy is not circumstantial. Happiness is. Joy is not circumstantial. But here's the funny thing. Happiness can ignite joy in us, just like joy can ignite happiness. It's kind of a weird chicken and egg situation, but it doesn't matter. Happiness can be circumstantial, but we all know that there are things in our life that are circumstances that can, that can direct our hearts back to God in pure joy. 
the joy of the Lord. And it says in this word in, in Romans 1, I, I thought about this while I was putting this together. It says in Romans 1 that God's invisible attributes are on display throughout all creation. Which means that even the unbeliever that doesn't know to worship God can see a sunset and go, oh, that's amazing. And it's happiness, it's joy that, that bubbles up. It might not have the, the understanding that this is from the hand of God, but when joy matures and happiness matures, it always goes back to this place of rejoicing in God's character, the one who gave everything to us that we find our joy in. I'll give you a very perfect example that many of you may be experiencing or soon in this next week. How many of you have ever had kids and you've given them gifts? Okay, so few. So stingy. Y'all might want to work on that. Um, but I know that, like, as a parent, when I started giving gifts to my kids, I, I noticed something in them that I'm sure that I did as a kid, and all of us did. That kid is so excited about what's in that present. And when they open that present, they're like, ah, the present I've always longed for. There's joy. And you kind of have to remind the kid, go thank your uncle, go thank your grandma, go thank me, you know, because their attention is not on the giver of the gift, it's on the gift itself, which is immature joy. It's not broken, it's just not grown up. But I know, and I experience this now, when, when someone is generous towards me and gives me a gift, yes, the gift is amazing, but I'm overwhelmed by the generosity of the person. It's like, oh my word, you're so generous. Thank you for thinking of, like, ah, oh, I feel so honored. Thank you for the car. You know, it's like, whatever, I didn't, I didn't, you know, you know. And so, but it's, it's, this, it's this maturing of joy that comes back to the giver. Which, of course, always erupts in gratitude. It always erupts in worship when we understand that the giver of absolutely everything is our Lord, is our God, is our Father. When we mature, joy takes on much more than just the circumstantial thing that triggered it. It takes on a deep appreciation for the one who's given everything for us. Which is why joy is never circumstantial. Now, I have to address something that sometimes creeps into Christianity because we all know things creep into Christianity that we're like, we have to fix that because uh, don't know where that came from. But sometimes in Christianity and the practice of our faith, we can feel bad about feeling happy or good. Anybody? And it's almost like we, we know intellectually that our joy is from the Lord. The joy of the Lord is our strength. So then when we experience joy, we automatically go into intellectualizing or making sure our theology is correct. Or like, yes, thank you, Lord, for the joy. And it's like, where's the joy in what you just, thank you, God, for the joy you've given me. It's like, I don't feel joy from you right now. I feel like a disconnection of joy. But I mean, theologically, you're right. But something in our hearts get disconnected when we try to make sure our theology is correct. But again, looking at my children when they're opening presents, I'm not frustrated that they don't go to thank the giver. I'm delighted in the joy that they're experiencing. Now, I'm a joy guy. I find joy in a lot of things. One is food. If you've ever been around me at a good meal, you know 
It's going to be like, oh, it was so good. You know, it's like, and it's, and I, you know, Benjamin Franklin once said that beer was proof that God loved us and wanted us to be happy. I think that Ben has a problem, but, um, but he's on to something. He's on to something that God has given us so many good gifts that he wants us to experience joy. And happiness as a byproduct of joy or happiness as a bridge to joy, it, it doesn't really matter because what God wants is to lift our hearts and ultimately to lift our eyes to him, the giver who's given it. Now, I understand that sometimes a message on joy, for some people it can be really encouraging, can be like, yay, joy, I'm a joy, 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 you know. But for some of us, we're walking in circumstances and we're walking in things that so hard, so hard to experience what we define as joy. I don't want anyone to think or to think that if you're wrestling with a difficult circumstance right now, that that disqualifies you from experiencing joy because, again, joy in its truest derivative is Really, it's worship. It's rejoicing. I want to tell you a story. This was, um, what I'm about to read you was written by a really dear friend of mine. Her name is Cynthia Beaudry, but her maiden name is Cynthia Lopez. She's a Puerto Rican from the Bronx. Now, if you've never met or befriended a Puerto Rican from the Bronx, you need to. <laughs> oh, man. I really hope someday that, that we can get her here on this stage to share her story. Because if there was any person that I've ever known, any story that I've ever heard that legitimized not having joy, that experienced so much pain that joy was just hard to come by, I think it would be her. And there's one more thing about joy. Joy and gratitude are interrelated. See, gratitude, gratitude is an outpouring of joy. Gratitude is thankfulness. Gratitude springs up from the worship and the understanding of joy from, our, from, our, from the giver of all. And gratitude can be difficult sometimes when you're facing circumstances that are painful and you can't see what God is up to. If anyone had the authority to talk about that, it would be Cynthia. And she wrote this referring to something that helped her understand how to find joy in all circumstances, gratitude in all circumstances. She asks this question before she gets into telling the story. What if it's too hard to give thanks to God because the gratitude sensor on your heart has been calloused over by layers of pain? In The Hiding Place, Corey Ten Boom recounts her time in the Ravensbrück concentration camp. It was Barracks 28, a compound designed for 400, but actually housed 1,400 women. It was there that Corey and her sister Betsy prayed and sought the Lord with their smuggled Bible. The conditions were unbearable, overflowing toilets, rotting straw, unstable sleeping platforms, and a flea and lice infestation. In Barracks 28, Corey and her sister recited 1 Thessalonians 5.1, and Corey begrudgingly gave thanks to God. Betsy said, that's it, Corey. That's his answer. Give thanks in all circumstances. 
That's what we can do. We can start right now to thank God for every single thing about this new barracks. Now, side note, have you ever known a perpetually optimistic person in your life? That sometimes you just want to punch in the throat. I take by the laughter. You do. Corey's response, so human, and I love it. I stared at her, then around at me at the dark, foul-aired room. Such as what? (laughs) What to give thanks for? Such as? She replied, such as being assigned here together. Corey bit her lip. Oh, yes, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Betsy, such as what you're holding in your hands. I looked down at the Bible. Yes, thank you, dear Lord, that there was no inspection then when we entered here, thank you for all these women here in this room who will meet you in these pages. Yes, Betsy said. Betsy, thank you for the very crowding here since we're packed so close that many more will hear. She looked at me expectantly. Corey, she prodded. Oh, right, yes. Thank you for the jammed, crammed, stuffed, packed, suffocating crowds. Thank you. Betsy went on sincerely and serenely. And for the fleas and hold up. You know, that's, that's my translation. Hold up. Corey's. The fleas. This was too much. Betsy, there's no way even God can make me grateful for a flea. Betsy's response. Give thanks in all circumstances, she quoted. It doesn't say in pleasant circumstances. Fleas are a part of this place where God has put us. So we stood there between the tiers of bunks and gave thanks for fleas. But this time I was sure Betsy was wrong. Understandably. But here's the thing. This would not be the first time the presence of God invaded a dark, unsanitary, filled with poop, uncomfortable room with fleas probably in it because it's in a room like that that Jesus chose to be born as Emmanuel God with us if Jesus chose to be born in an environment like that his presence can certainly enter here and we can certainly give thanks for the circumstances as the story goes on as Cynthia writes this when Corey Ten Boom and her sister were in Barracks 28, they thanked God for the fleas. Little did they know God's intention during their time there. They were able to meet with other women for worship services. And at first, the book says that they met with great timidity. Then as night after night went by and no guard ever came in to stop them, they grew bolder and increased the number of times they met. Despite the great surveillance and the threat of execution in their dormitory, they had no supervision oddly enough, and were able to worship the Lord freely. Later, they came to discover all of the Nazi personnel were afraid to enter their dorm because of the tremendous infestation of fleas. Lord. Joy is not circumstantial. 
If the worship team can make their way back up. Joy is not circumstantial. It is not dependent on a comfortable situation, an uncomfortable history. It's not, it's not, it doesn't rely on anything but our hearts to attune in worship to a God who has given everything to redeem us. Kim preached last week on peace and she brought up the word shalom, the peace of God. Shalom in Hebrew, the concept is rooted in, in meaning wholeness, completeness, soundness, health, safety, and prosperity, carrying with it the implication of permanence. It's not the circumstances that God brings peace to, it's our souls. Because God has once and forever made us whole and right with him. He has redeemed our souls. He has brought us into relationship with him. Our salvation, the enemy can take it from us. We can't misplace it. The circumstances do not diminish what God has done. So no matter what we are going through, we can come back to the peace of God that is settled once and forever as we've received him as Lord and Savior, that we are his and we have an eternal destiny that we can praise him for. He has redeemed us. And that gives me this morning a lot of joy. So I want to invite you this morning as we respond with gratitude and grace and worship to the God who has done this for us. And if you worship through tears, it's good. If you worship through gritted teeth, that's okay. If you are so filled with joy that you are one of those people I wanna punch in the throat, have at it, let the joy abound, but understand that the place that this thing finds root, true, mature joy is when our hearts are directed back to the God who has done everything for us. Every circumstance can be redeemed. Every pain will be met with comfort. Every place of prison will be met with freedom. Every place of shame will be met with a double portion of grace and honor. Every place that we thought impossible is not impossible. All things are possible in Him. Every place we thought was too dark, well, that's where the light shones the most. Because our hope, our peace, and our joy is found in Him. Let's worship. I just want to invite you to stand or kneel or lay on the ground or whatever you need to do, but let's just respond and let this last couple minutes just be an overflow time. Praise. 
I've got one response I've got just one move With my arms stretched wide I will worship you So I throw up my hands And praise you again and again Cause all that I have is hallelujah Hallelujah And I know it's not much I'm nothing else fit for a king Except for this heart out for our souls. We're singing this like David saying in the Psalms, commanding our soul to praise no matter the circumstances. And I believe that joy is going to flow out of us this morning in a new place, the joy that is our strength. Oh, come on my soul, don't you get shy on me, lift up your song, cause you've got a lion inside of those lungs. Get up that praise the Lord yeah. Come on my soul Don't you get shy on me Lift up your song Cause you've got a lion Inside of those lungs Get up and praise the Lord Oh come on my soul Don't you get shy Don't you get shy? 
Amen, amen, 